This is Hacker Public Radio. My name is Klaatu, and this is the Networking Basics mini-series, part six. You were probably thinking, what Networking Basics mini-series? Well, if you look back about 400 episodes or so ago, there was a Networking Basics part five, and that was an episode that I was talking about, uh, particularly the Internet Protocol IP uh, as detailed in RFC 791, talked a little bit about the protocol, uh, port assignments, and stuff like that. And that was a follow-up on four previous parts of that series in which we spoke about all manners of networking uh, protocols, networking conventions, the way that packets are constructed, and, and various things like that. So if you haven't heard that in any of those series, in any of those episodes in the, the series yet, and you need a primer on networking theory, basic networking theory, then that might be something that you want to look at, or better yet, listen to. So, in this series, we're going to talk about, or in this episode, and, and for the next couple of episodes, we're going to talk about setting up a server. And I'll tell you why that was a completely vague statement in a, in a moment, but I'm going to first give you a little bit of a preamble as to why I think it's important to talk about setting up servers. Um, and this is not something that has not been covered, if you'll pardon the double negative, before, right? How to set up a server, that's a topic that other podcasts have covered. The one that comes to my mind most immediately is Linux Basement, Chad Wallenberg, the, the fine Chad Wallenberg spoke about setting up a server um, for the entire season of like I think it was his season two or three so that was a really great series and he was doing it on uh, Ubuntu and it was working really well for him and and the series was really good now I don't know about you but me I wasn't even anywhere near setting up a server uh, at, at that time when he was doing that so I, I listened and I learned but um not as much as I probably could have if I'd been a little bit farther along. Of course, I could go back and listen to it now. But then again, it never really hurts to hear this sort of thing more than once in different kinds of delivery styles. So I encourage you to go back and listen to other podcasts that have covered this topic. Um, And I'm going to be covering it. I'm going to try to keep it as generic as possible, but when it comes down to it, my experience has been on Fedora and Red Hat in terms of the server stuff, and that's just where I've gotten the experience. So I'll be covering it from that angle, and um, I'll be covering it in a way that helped me understand it, and if your learning style is similar to mine, maybe you'll find this one, this particular take on on the topic, informative. Servers are so ubiquitous at this point that if you're a geek, you really owe it to yourself and to the people around you who rely on your geekiness for their everyday lives and uh, support to really understand how servers work. If, if you've never set one up, then you're really just dealing with a bunch of theory, and you're almost, in, in, a, in a way, you're, you're kind of dealing with a black box because you've never been inside there, you've never set it up, you've never seen the, the causes for failure, the causes for confusion... Uh, you, you don't really understand what's going on on the inside. So getting experience with a server 
while it isn't necessarily a must-have, it really does help, especially if you go around talking about computers all the time, because people are inevitably going to ask you where their internets went, and, and if you don't even understand how the internets get onto someone's computer from the magical cloud outside, then you're not going to be all that much help, aside from calling Comcast and asking for support and and at least knowing how to find the network manager when they tell you to open up uh, the network manager or whatever. So, that's why you should know about servers. Um, This miniseries hopes to to understand servers a little bit better, and in order to do that, I think that we need to introduce the server-client concept, because this, after a while, you start to take this for granted, but you have to understand how few people actually understand this. So, the term, quote-unquote, server, it's a very accurate term, actually. It's, it's, really, it's really well said, server. That makes a lot of sense. But unfortunately, it gets confused a lot, because a lot of different things come to mind when we hear that word. So we think of these big, scary data centers, these big, loud, jet-engined, loud, uh, four-unit rack computers without any screens. That's what we think of when we say, oh, that's a server. And when people say, oh, I, I work with servers, and, and I'm, going to do a, I'm going to set up a server now, that's what we think of. We think of these mysterious machines without any screen. You don't even know how to get in there. Uh, they don't even have a, compu- uh, a keyboard hooked up to them. What's going on? Well, this can all be very, very simplified. Uh, a server is any computer. It can be a laptop. It can be a little, little, um, little electric board with a little processor on it. You know, no size, no, no larger than the size of a gumstick. You know, I mean, these. It can be a desktop computer. It can be a four rack unit beast of a computer. It just, it's a computer from which you or, or someone gets information. Even more specifically, we could say a service, but what is a service? Um, So if you're getting information from a computer that you're not sitting in front of, you're connecting to a different computer to get that information off of it and deliver it onto your screen, then that that computer that you're connecting to is a server. So what kind of computer are you therefore running? Well, you're running a client. So the two terms here are server and client, and then uh, local and remote. That's another thing that you hear oftentimes. So the server is the remote computer that you are accessing and requesting information from. The local computer is the one that you're sitting at, typing on, and uh, it's the client computer because it's requesting information. Now, very, very interestingly, a client computer could also be a server to someone else. So just because you're on a quote-unquote client machine doesn't mean you're not serving someone else something. So, in fact, if you followed along with my HPR episode a long time ago on SSH and X-forwarding, I think, and and DNS, um, dynamic DNS, stuff like that, if you followed along with that episode and learned how to SSH into a computer from that episode, then guess what? You have already set up a server, amazingly enough. Yes, you have. Um... The minute you started the SSHD, well, the SSH daemon, the SSHD uh, service, that computer became an SSH server. And when you went out to the cafe or you went to work and and SSH'd back home, 
um, than you were using an SSH client. So you see, you're not really as new to this as you might have thought. And that's, I think, one of the confusing things about servers. We, we often think that a server has to be one certain thing, doing a certain task. And in reality, there's all kinds of different servers. Um, now, sure, they may all be existing on the same computer, the same box, or it could be a whole bunch of boxes around the data center or your apartment or your workplace, whatever. But, yeah, a server can serve many, many different things. Uh, you've probably heard of DHCP servers. You've probably heard of DNS servers, web servers, um, obviously, like I said, H, uh, SSH servers, music-playing uh, servers, you know, like a music-playing daemon, MPD. It could be serving streaming media. It could be doing all of these things and more. Go for sites, even. Uh, FTP. There's just so much out there that you can you can serve. You, you can connect to these computers and access the, the different processes and kind of the, the different... I don't really know if it's an application per se, but it's like an, this sort of infrastructure that it, that it provides you. Okay, so what you need to get started setting up your own server. Well, like I say, if you've already set up an SSH-capable machine, then actually you've already set up a server, and the idea is pretty much the same. If, you, if you're going to play around with setting up a server, all you need is, like, well, really two computers, maybe three. Sometimes is, is three would be better, but at least two. One is going to be a ser- the server computer, and one is going to be the client, or two could be the clients, because it's kind of cool. If you have three, then you can see how the client talks to the server, and then you can also see how the client talks to the other client, because that's always interesting to, to see as well. In theory, I imagine you could do a lot of this with a, 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 a number of virtual machines. Like, if you've got a really nice, beefy computer, lots of power behind it, uh, you could just install, like... I don't know, KVM and libvirt or VirtualBox or whatever, and then just virtualize, you know, establish basically two or three virtual machines. And and they could be pretty lightweight virtual machines, too. I mean, really, you could just install, like, a bare minimum install of, like, Fedora or Debian or, or Slackware or just whatever... No X isn't really required, actually, uh, in any of the cases. And then you could... And and that virtual environment will have its own little sub-network inside of your bigger computer. So you could make that sort of your virtualized test ground. Personally, I I mean, first of all... And I I don't know, I haven't done enough virtualization to really know how how many network cards you can just... Create. I mean, I, I imagine you can do that pretty pretty easily within most of the virtual machine uh, clients, but I, I'm not. I haven't really done it. And personally, I don't know if I would do it that way, simply because I think I know myself. I think I would get confused as to which virtual machine was which and all that sort of thing. And and I don't think I, I do a lot better sometimes with hardware. You know, if I'm pulling a cable out of a box, then I know I've just pulled that cable out of the box. If I'm just typing in some numbers and resetting things in a virtual machine, I don't think it would impact me quite the same way. But maybe you're different, so if you just absolutely don't have a lot of hardware, but you have one that you think would be capable of a lot of virtual hardwares, then, hey, go for it. 
Um, the required specs for a server vary depending on what kind of server you're intending to set up, and also what your intended or what your expe- your expected usage is. So if all you want to set up, for instance, is like a simple music streaming server so that you can play music uh, around your apartment remotely and just have that box kind of managing all your music all, all day, then you could do that. Um, and you could use that maybe as an IRSSI uh, machine, a little server for a, a screen session with IRSSI in it so you can always be logged into IRC, that sort of thing. Um, I mention this as an example because that's what I do. I've got a little... Apple G4, it's like 400 megahertz, and it has like half a gig of RAM in it, and it does that sort of thing perfectly well. It 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 serves me files, it serves me music, and serves screen, which inside of which I am running IRSSI, so that I can be always connected to IRC, and then I can SSH into that box from from out when I'm out at a cafe or something. I can reattach to screen and um, talk to people online as if though I was sitting right there in in the room. So, um, that's a pretty simple server. Simple to set up. You don't really need anything special for that. Now, the minute you start trying to get three and four and five and twenty people onto a box sharing uh, complex services, you may or may not need something a little bit more powerful. Once again, I've actually used like a G4. I think it was a little bit faster. It was like one gigahertz maybe, but that it's it, it it's a little file sharing server, a Samba file share, um, in a classroom at my job, and it does great. And there's about 16 people uh, using it concurrently, and it, it does fine. And it's and it's just that little it's a little local file server. On the other hand, put that G4 same G4 specs in a room where three people are going to use it running a web server and Drupal and Civi CRM and all these other things that you can kind of build on top of Apache and stuff, suddenly the thing just slows to a crawl. So you really kind of have to know who is using the server and what they need it for, and you have to somehow magically have an idea, some some notion of what exactly kind of demand that is going to put on your computer, on on the server. And I don't know of any way to really know what that is without just trying it, just setting it up, having people use it, and when they start complaining that the thing is horrible and slow, then you know it was a bad idea to try that particular old box and you need to upgrade. Um, So... Yeah, it really depends. You can you can go any way there. And and like I say, there's a lot of different kinds of servers, and, and you can have one box that run lots of different services. So if you know that you need a gateway machine that is going to serve DHCP and DNS information and maybe some file sharing, you know, it's, it's gonna you're, you're going to want a, a fairly powerful box then. Okay, so enough about what a server is. I think we've all got an idea. So in this episode, we're going to set up a gateway machine. And a gateway machine is not a brand of computer. It is a computer that brings the internet into itself. It ingests the internets, and then it distributes that internet signal back out to its clients.
it sounds an awful like like a router, doesn't it? Well, interestingly enough, that's basically what we're setting up. So um, we'll do that first, and the way to do that initially would be to, like I say, find a box. This box needs to have two network cards. That is not to say that every server that you're going to build will have to have two network cards. It's just that if you want a server to sit between your clients and the World Wide Web, you do need two network cards, because what we're going to do is assign an IP address to one network card for the server to have, and then we're going to send out other addresses out of that other network card. Um, so you need two physical network cards for this for this particular setup. But hey, if you're not interested, or if you don't have the the hardware for to to, to make a gateway machine, no worries. We can still uh, do cool things with that spare box that you have lying around. But we'll um, we'll you, you'll just have to skip the whole gateway part. But that's fine. So. Assuming that you do, or assuming that you're interested in how it is done, uh, you would want to first install Linux on, on that machine. That's kind of a no-brainer. Uh, you could do BSD as well. It's just whatever. Some free distribution of a Unix or Unix-like operating system is a really good idea. Um, just because it's a server does not mean it must not have a graphical environment. Um, if you feel like a graphical environment might be a nice fallback for you if you're not used to a bunch of terminal work, then then go for it. Um, lots of people, more people than I kind of had imagined before I got a job sort of doing server kinds of stuff, more people than I realized actually do run the graphical environment, even if it's not um, something that they have a monitor attached to their server for. They, they still have the x11 environment set up so that they can then do x forwarding into that box so if that makes you feel better or if it's just a good um, fallback kind of things because you're not sure if you're going to be able to get through all the terminal stuff then that's fine you can do that it doesn't really matter um, but at the same time it could be a really really lightweight install it doesn't have to be anything fancy uh, so don't feel like you have to install the full GNOME desktop or anything like that, it can be really lightweight. And remember that running a desktop, even though you're not seeing it, it is using up system resources, so um, keep that in mind if you're trying to maximize the, the power of your server. Another thing that people tend to, like if you're looking at Linux distributions and trying to figure out which one should I go with, um, I would say off the top of my head, go with, with the one that you know, but if you don't want to do that, uh, then if this is a server that you intend and, and it might not be right now, but in the future when you're looking at actually setting up a server that that is going to hopefully have staying power, uh, then you want to keep in mind that the long-term support stuff actually starts to matter when you're dealing with servers. On your desktop, you might update and upgrade your distribution to the latest six-month release cycle every, well, six months, or possibly even earlier than that if you just love to run alphas and betas. But on the server, you, d you don't want to go through that trouble. Believe me, there's too much stuff that you're configuring on the system level to make it really super simple to just back up and, and reinstall. I mean, obviously you can, but I mean it, it's, a, it's a little bit more complex than just dragging your slash home directory, uh, slash home slash your username directory over to a hard drive and then dragging it back on after you reinstall because there's a whole bunch of config files and stuff that you're going to be messing around with. So uh, the long-term support thing is good. Of course, the security updates are really important. 
To that end, Slackware, of course, is a really great thing for a server because it's got, like, non-stop security updates, I think, since version 8. I mean, they're still updating his stuff for Slackware 8 uh, for security. So, I mean, that's that's some serious support there. Red Hat is the other big industry standard one, of course, or it is the industry standard one, I guess. It is happens to be the one that I use. Um, you can get an academic license if you want to if you're if you're looking to get into the the IT world uh, and get a, an actual job doing this sort of thing and you feel like you really want to know sort of like those kind of those checks in the block you know you you want to be able to say yes I know Red Hat yes I've used them yes I've had a support co- uh, a contract with them before you can get an academic license um, I'm not sure you, you I imagine you need to be a student somewhere but um, if if you go back and listen to my episode on fake IDs, you might be able to come up with a, a way to to make that happen. Um, if you don't want to do the whole supported Red Hat thing where you can actually call them on the phone, well, actually, I think the academic doesn't let you call anyway. You can get web support from Red Hat. But if you don't want to do that and you feel like you can muddle your way through this without spending 60 bucks on the academic license, which is probably true, um, then you could go, of course, the CentOS route, uh, Scientific Linux as well. I've been using the Scientific Linux repository on one of my workstations, and it's pretty pretty good. So you know you've got those Red Hat clones, and then honestly the Fedora stuff is really good too. I mean, I love Fedora anyway, but um, and and I felt a little bit weird about running it on a server, and and I still feel a little bit weird about running it on the server. But it is kind of nice. It, it's there's a certain freedom to Fedora that just you know you can install whatever you want. Um, of course, I know Fedora f- fairly well, so I feel really, really comfortable with it. It feels just really very much like home, so that's a pretty good one. And yet it also feels very much like Red Hat, because it basically is, I mean, it's the same stuff. It's the same configuration tools, it's the same file locations. So uh, Fedora's not a bad idea either. And then uh, Debian, of course, is a great choice, because they're huge and stable and well, well supported. So, Debian or Ubuntu, you know, I mean, I'm sure that's basically the same. I've never run an Ubuntu server myself, but Debian, I have run a lot of the PowerPC boxes lying around here at work. They all run Debian and are serving files and 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 uh, web development environments for, for a different person here and there. So, that's not bad. FreeBSD is supposed to be really good as well, although I've I've never actually run it on a server, so I wouldn't know for sure. Okay, so if you've installed any of those, then you're pretty much good to go. And the great thing about these Linux and Unix distributions that we all seem to love so much um, is that they're ready. They're 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 they 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 were designed with the server client model in mind, um, where I don't even know, maybe the server-client relationship was designed with Unix and model I, in mind. I mean, I, I don't know how it all started, but this is this is classic computing. This is the way that the forefathers uh, d- dreamt of it. And by forefathers, yes, I do mean uh, George Washington and all those guys. Um, so setting up a server as an internet gateway, that'll be our first uh, server exercise in this mini-series, and we're going to go ahead and throw in DHCP service as well, because it's it's very, very much related. 
Um, so let's assume that you've got a computer with two network cards available. Network cards, I think, are pretty cheap, actually, so if you don't have them available, you could probably find one pretty cheap these days. There, there's doesn't have to be a super fast one if it's just playing around. But um, otherwise, yeah, there you go. Or you could hack some different boxes together. I've done that plenty of times, even with the Macs that I find lying around. You know, just pull some memory out of one and a hard drive out of the other, and you just kind of make one better box than the two were uh, separate. So, you know, use your imagination. Like I say, worst comes to worst, I'm sure you could do this with uh, virtual machines or whatever. So, uh, or you could do it on pen and paper and just draw it all out and write it down and just pretend like it's networking. But it would be better to have a computer. So, take whatever computer you've got that you're going to make your server, and you should probably put a graphics card in it just temporarily because um, you need to get onto that machine and, and configure it and stuff. Um, of course, you've probably already got that because you've installed Linux onto it, so you had to do that, presumably, with a graphics card. Uh, if not, great. If you can get into the computer without requiring a video card, that's really cool, too. But I generally just throw a graphics card in there so that I can see what I'm doing. Uh, just at least for the initial stage. So you want to turn on the box, install the distro if you haven't already, and um, if you see any special options for like a server install, you may or may not want to use them. It doesn't honestly really matter. Like I say, this is all, this is just how Linux works. You don't have to do a special server install. You can just do a normal minimal install or a normal normal install and you can always throw the server components on top of that and it'll work just the same way as, as anything else. So don't be confused by distributions that have like a server edition or whatever. It, it doesn't matter. Okay, so you reboot and now you're sitting there at your login prompt and I don't know if you have to make a user or not. It kind of depends on the distribution that you're using, but you may have to make an initial user uh, which you'll want to do. You don't want to run as root the whole time, although you'll be doing a lot of root activities, but you still don't want to just run as root. You should have an, a user. So the first thing that you'll want to do is um, the network configuration of that box. And for this stage, it really does make it easier to be physically in front of that box. Because if we... I mean, you could walk away from the box and SSH in, but then once you start messing around with all the networking stuff, you're probably going to lose your SSH connection, and you'll have to, like, figure out what to connect to again. And it just kind of... It gets annoying. It's not a, it's it's not essential, but it's a lot easier. Uh, and sometimes it is essential, depending on what's going on, whether you've done everything correct, to be physically in front of that computer. So an Internet gateway is going to be the server that sits between you, your users... Um, and the World Wide Web. And the way that that works is that we need to get an IP address from your ISP to one of your network cards. That's the first step. And the way to do that, at least in Red Hat and Fedora, is, and, and I'll talk about the other ones in a minute as well, is located in slash etsy slash sysconfig slash network dash scripts. And in that directory you'll see a bunch of networking type scripts like if up dash eth0 if config or e, I, if 
cfg-eth0 if down-eth0. And the same series of things for uh, the loopback device and for the other uh, networking card, which would be eth1. So you'll see these these little scripts residing there. In Debian, you have slash network slash interfaces, and that's about all I know about it. I know that I use that to establish a static IP address in some of the boxes that I use. Um, sometimes I do it outside of that box with just DHCP, so haven't really used that a whole lot. But it's pretty similar also to the slash etsy slash rc.d slash rc.inet1.conf or rc.inet2.conf in Slackware, uh, where you are simply telling it, okay, I know that I have two network cards, you know that I have two network cards, here's what to do with each network card. So the concept is the same, it's just the location of that actual file, even the name of the file that you're going to be specifying that information is completely different. Um, and if you've ever hard-coded a static IP onto a computer in Linux, and by hard-coded I mean editing the actual text file, then this is actually already familiar to you. If you have not done that, then this is going to seem a little bit unfamiliar to you, but but it is, if, if you just open up whatever system you're on, if you open up that text file in typical Linux fashion, it's very well commented. It says this is where you configure your internet, your uh, Ethernet, um, your network interfaces. And it, it gives you examples, at least Slackware does, and I, I'm sure, yeah, Debian does too, I remember. Um, so you can, you can just kind of follow along. And the, the basic idea of what you're, of what you're telling it is what, you're, you're establishing a name for the device, which your, your system has probably already established for you, so there's probably, it's, it's probably already going to be called something, so you might as well just keep going with that. You're going to assign a IP address, an IP address, to that network interface. And, and notice that I'm saying you're assigning it to that network interface, not to that computer, because that would be actually quite incorrect to say. It, it's, it's the IP address that you're assigning to that network card. So what should that network card have as the IP address? Should it have like 192.168.1.1? No, of course not. We're trying to get the internet into this. Not We're not assigning it a local um, address right now. So we're saying that we need to know whatever IP address is being sent to us from our ISP. Classic way to do that, of course, is... Well, I guess one way would be to talk to the the internet company that you're using, the ISP that you're using, but probably more realistically, they're not going to know. So you just go to whatsmyip.org, and that, of course, tells you exactly what IP address you are sending out into the world. That's how you're attached to the internet. And we've, we, we've seen this before. Like I say, if you've followed along with the SSH episode, we used this information to go out to a cafe or whatever and SSH back home and sometimes we had to do it with noip.com or dynamic uh, dyndns whatever so it's the same deal we just need to know how the internet is getting into this box from the cloud outside down into our house like a little cable or the DSL cable whatever into our house or our building and then through the wall and then out of the wall plugged into our computer. That IP address right there, that's what you want to make your server's first 
Ethernet card. That's, that's the address you want to assign it. Potential problem area would be if this address changes frequently. In, in the various places that I've lived in the past very long time, um, I have not had that issue, actually. I, it just seems like I, I realize that that's not a static IP, and yet I'll go a year, I think, and I've just, I, it just won't ever change. So it might as well be static. Um, however, I've heard of people who, yeah, whose, whose IP address just changes constantly. It's like they're just always getting a different IP address from, from their, their service provider. Or, even worse, sometimes there's that whole, um, what is it, like, PPP over e- Ethernet or something, or well, basically, it's it's when they it's when the company doesn't actually give you an IP address. They they give you a um, a bridge to to get into their network, and so you you you're not getting a you, you don't actually know your external IP address directly. You're not getting that IP address directly. So in those cases, you you sort of you can assign the server the the IP address that you have right now in this moment. It might change later on. It, it, for the exercise, it'll probably work fine for you, but if if this is a long-term thing, it could be a little bit more complex. It can be done, however. It can absolutely be done. And the way that it would be done is that, well, especially if it's, in, if it's like a bridged m- modem setup where you're actually getting like a, a 172 dot something 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 dot something 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 dot something address from your internet company then that would be the address of this server and um, that that'll work fine actually but it, it'll be a little bit different in terms of what's actually going on but heck as long as it's an internet signal that, that that'll work the prefix um, let's just call it 24 right now because that's um, that's the kind of network we'll set up for for now uh, the gateway is going to be whatever the gateway, again, from your ISP that you are assigned. So in this case, it would be, in my case, if my IP address that I'm getting in from the ISP is 69.122.13.86, then the gateway address is 69.122.13.1, and that's pretty consistent. Um, again, it's just that's kind of information that you'll get from your ISP more than more than anything, and you can usually take a stab at both of those numbers. Like if you do a what's my IP dot org and you find out your IP address, then you can just knock that gateway number, the, the 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 last number on that IP address, down to one, and that's probably your gateway. Your network, your, your net mask is usually two five five dot two five five dot two five five dot zero, and there are lots of ways to change that as well. But that's what we'll do for now. And then the DNS one would be your initial DNS server, so we'll just, for now, we're going to use 208.67.222.222, which is, of course, open DNS, and then the DNS2 server we'll use is 208.67.220.220. We'll come in and change that in a different episode when we start setting up our own DNS server, but for now, we're going to just leave it as as open DNS um, services. Of course, you could also use your ISP's service if you want. Doesn't really matter to me, but it sh- you should obviously assign a-, a DNS to this. If there's an option for peer DNS, you should turn that off. 
and you can set your domain name here of the of the network card and I like to set this myself personally to um, some domain dot local because then my little intranet if I decide to set one up can all have something something dot local addresses and I just kind of I don't know that just makes sense to me like logically that makes sense to me um, there are probably places that don't want to do it that way for very good reasons um, like their intranet and their actual their actual domain are, are maybe the same or something like that so um, it's, it's not something that is necessary but you certainly can make your little your little local network can have the domain of some some domain name dot local so for me it's slackermedia dot local um, you want to do the hardware address, so that's the MAC address of the network card, of the network interface. Um, that's really important because that's how the computer really knows which network card it is. You can call it whatever you like. You want to make sure that you're actually speaking to the correct network card and everything. So uh, if you don't know the MAC address, uh, then just do an if config and find out the, the hardware address of that card and enter it into the configuration. And there are typically other options available like in Red Hat you, you've got things like IPv4 underscore failure underscore fatal I set that to yes IPv6 init I set that to no because I'm just not there yet I know I should be I feel guilty about it sorry boot proto I say none because there doesn't need to be on boot I, need, I say yes because there does need to be this, this thing needs to come up on boot so um, you will typically find that, like I say, in the configuration file, whether it's the etsy slash uh, network slash interfaces or whatever, or um, the rc.d slash rc.inet one or two dot conf, it's, it's, it's almost always got examples, and it's usually got a lot of different options, and it kind of explains what those options are. The way that I started was I started with the bare minimum, which was basically the MAC address, the IP address, the on boot flag and um well the name I put in a card name oh and the DNS I put in the DNS servers and the dom the the DNS servers and the domain name um and, and then I kind of add more stuff onto that later um for instance I've got user control that is user CTL uh, I set that to no because I don't want anyone on the server to be able to control the main network interface uh, in M controlled currently I have set yet to yes so that's network manager controlled yes I'm trying to get away from that because I feel like I'd have actually more control if I didn't let network manager sort of own that card but um, right now that's that's turned on because it's convenient so look through the configuration file copy what you see kind of use your head again the concept is get an internet get an IP address from the ISP that you're using and set this card to that. And then since this is kind of the master card, this is the the one that all the other computers are going to kind of defer to as their router, basically, you want to make sure that it's got the important settings like um, DNS settings and some kind of, you know, a, the domain name, stuff like that. You want that to be present. So set that and then you'll be ready to set up the other network interface.
So at this point, like if you've set up that card and you've done an if config and it's all looking good, you should be able to ping something on the internet and get a signal back. And I mean you should be able to ping the internet from that box, from that physical box that we're setting up right now. Um, it should have a direct link right now to your ISP. So if you're not getting a ping back from where you for, from from a, a site that you're pinging, and you believe that you should, um, then you're doing something wrong. And I would probably have to guess that it had something to do with uh, the IP address that you're assigning to that internet or to that network interface. So verify that that's actually the IP address that is being distributed to you from your ISP and really it, it should almost I mean that should do it uh, try pinging an IP address f if, if you're if you're trying to ping like you know google.com or something and that's not working then try to ping some IP address of a place and and see if that works because it could just be that you ha haven't set up your DNS uh, servers or or it could be that you're not setting up your um, your DNS server correctly maybe there's uh, maybe you've got a syntax error in there, you forgot to quote the IP the IP address of the open DNS server, or you mistyped it or whatever. So um, that honestly that, that step was really pretty straightforward when I set it up the, the very first time. That was not something that really gave me a whole lot of trouble. It's basically just like setting up any kind of network card when you get a, a um, an internet connection with with any old ISP. Okay, so the next step then is to set up a second network card in that computer, which you should see if you do an if config, you should see that you have an eth0 and an eth1. So eth0 is going to be, well, is now configured to be your connection to the internet. So eth1 is going to be your connection to all the other computers in the in the house or in the office or in the apartment, whatever. So uh, again, you would on Red Hat you would just do a uh, vim on slash etc slash sysconfig slash network dash scripts slash ifconfig dash eth1, and that probably will already exist on a, on a, com a correct install. It should have default values in that as well uh, already, but uh, if not, then you can create it pretty simply, and that is, um, again, the first line would be device equals eth1, nm controlled equals yes, if if that's what you choose, and right now it, it's probably simpler to just leave that on, on boot equals yes, the type equals ethernet, boot proto is static. So you want this one to be statically assigned, you do not want this to um, change or anything like that, this is a static IP address that you're assigning this thing, uh, and and that's a good thing. IP address equals 192.168. Let's say um, 8.1 or or whatever. Set some subnet for yourself. But yeah, it's it's we'll go with 192.168.8.1. Again, I'm going to skip over IP version six guiltily because I just I don't use that yet. So I'm going to call that a no. I'm going to call user control equaling no, and the hardware address is going to be whatever the MAC address of that Ethernet card is. And that's really all I need for that interfa interfa that particular interface. So notice that it does not have a 
DNS setting. It doesn't have a domain name setting. It doesn't have any of that extra stuff that ETH0 had uh, because that's not its job. It, it's actually going to be deferring to ETH0 for all that information. Um, so that's um, that's that's this card's setup, really. So at this point, you should be able to do some kind of, like, I don't know, if you need to, an if config up or down, like if config down ETH, ETH1 and then bring it back up with if config up ETH1. If you're on Red Hat, they, they kind of want you to use, like, the little... The um, the if up scripts, so you could do that too. But however you need to bring uh, the network card down and then back up, I I usually like to do that. You could also, in theory, do like a service space network restart, just to make sure that all your settings are kind of kicking in. Um, and actually, before you do that, we should set IP uh, forwarding uh, to yes. And the way that you do that is it's in uh, etsy slash syscontrol.conf and there's a setting that says net.ip4.ip underscore forward equals 1 well it might say 0 but you want it to say 1 uh, meaning that you want to forward IP packets to the rest you know to your other to the other interfaces from one to the other uh, interface this is the kind of the thing actually that makes this box into a router. Uh, when the I, when the network comes into this computer that you're sitting at right now, the server, then you are forwarding all of those packets onto their various destinations. So if someone requests something from hackerpublicradio.org, then when that request comes back, of course, it has a header that says, hey, I'm destined for 192.168.8.8. Eighty-six on your network. Could you send it to them? Well, if you have net.ipv4.ip underscore forward set to zero, then that's not going to be forwarded onto the rest of the network. But if you set it to one, then it will be. So that's the way that uh, Red Hat does it. And amazingly, for once, it's exactly the same on Debian. It's the it's the same file name. It's the same location. Um, the comments are a little bit different. But it's the same thing. So it's just go into it with Vim or whatever as root user and um, uncomment the line that says net.ipv4.ip underscore forward equals... Well, it's it's commented out, so it'll say 1. And then if you uncomment it, then suddenly you're enabling IP forwarding. So um, exactly the same process. The odd man out here is Slackware, but happily the Slackware method is exactly like, well, everything else you do on Slackware. It's really, really consistent. You simply make the slash etsy slash rc dot d slash rc dot ip forward um, script in in obviously the rc dot d uh, folder. You make that executable, and from then on, the packets will be forwarded, and it will come on at boot time and everything. So that th- that box that you're configuring right there is now distributing, passing on all that IP information to the other network interfaces. So very very clear and easy. I mean, it's almost something that you don't even have to look up. If you just poke around in the rc.d folder long enough, you see that pretty much everything you want to do is right there, and as long as it's executable, then it's going to start that service. It's pretty nice. So at this point, we're, we, we've basically set up the, the server itself. It's, it's, it is now a gateway to the internet, but one thing that you do want to do uh, is, is have a DHCP server running somewhere, unless you want to manually configure everything, but I mean, come on. 
you're not really going to do that. So let's just set up the DHCP server. This is actually really marvelously simple. This was one of those things that was just, I don't know, surprisingly, amazingly easy to do. It's, it's sort of simple like SSHD, or uh, yeah, SSH, you know, where you just kind of turn it on and it just kind of works. It's almost that easy. So, um, so we've got a little gateway server going. Now we're going to add to that same physical box a DHCP server. So if you think about it, we really are kind of we're, we're, we've got two servers in one physical box, and that's why I keep saying that that when we hear the term server, it, it's kind of a it, it's very accurate, and yet it's also a little bit deceptive because it's not just a server; it's a computer with lots of little services or server uh, applications running on it. Okay, so we've got um, we've got this thing, and so we need to now install DHCPD. And you'll notice you'll start to notice that a lot of these services that we are running all the time end with D because they're daemons. They just kind of run and purr in the background happily and they're just sitting there so that when someone pings them they hear that res- they, they hear that request and they serve out whatever information they're designed to to serve out. So uh, you know on whatever platform you're running you can just install if it doesn't already exist on the computer DHCPD package, whatever that would be. Um, I don't even know. I've Everything I've ever set up has already had that on it. All I had to do was actually initiate it. But before we do initiate it, we want to make sure that we have a good configuration file in place. And on, on Red Hat and Fedora, that's in slash etsy slash dhcp slash dhcpd.conf. At least by default, um, there are other DHCP servers. I mean, the big, I guess the the, the default one, uh, very often is DHCPD. But there are other DHCP servers out there. Some of them are considered more lightweight or whatever. So, if you're installing a lot of this sort of by hand or whatever, then you can choose maybe a different one. But but the one that I've used has only been on a Red Hat server and it's only been DHCPD. So that's the one that I can t- t- talk to you about. On Debian, I've never u- I've never made a Debian DHCP uh, server before. Uh, they're, the Debian boxes around here are typically the file servers, so they they're, they get their addresses from the, the main DHCP server. On Slackware, it is in uh, DHCP rather is in slash USR slash SBIN slash DHCPD. You can start that manually, I guess. I that's probably not recommended. Uh, you can install it when you're installing Slackware. You can probably grab it off of the um, or rather a startup script. You can you can install, if I recall correctly, when you're setting up Slackware um, and there's also one on Alien Bob's uh, wiki, or, or his site, rather. It's connie.slackware.com slash tilde alien slash rc underscore scripts, and you can find some rc scripts in there. So, um, I've, I've never actually run one on Slackware either, so I don't really, I, I don't have a whole lot of experience with, with that. It's just the, the ones that I have done have been on Red Hat, and then some on Fedora just kind of playing around. Um, but the one that's in production is on Red Hat. Either way, it's a really easy setup. The configuration is pretty, um, pr- 
pretty easy. It's it's it's. I mean, it can be complex if you want it to be, but the the default input into this file, this conf file, and again, it'll be well commented as well. But you want to set an option, option domain dash name, and then in quotes whatever the domain name is of your network. So in, in my case, like I said, it was going to be quote slackermedia.local, end quote, semicolon. You have to remember the semicolons. I cannot tell you how many times, unfortunately, I have failed to place a semicolon on some random line in the DHCP uh, d.conf file and um, just completely, completely, utterly... You wasted, like, an hour trying to figure out what I'd done wrong, and of course it was just a semicolon. So, uh, another option that you'd want to set are the domain name servers. So option domain dash name dash servers and that'll be 208.67.222.222 comma 208.67.220.220. I might have those reversed, but you get the idea. Just look up the open uh, DNS IP addresses. I always forget which one is their first and their second one. doesn't really matter, I guess. Uh, anyway, you've got... Um, we've just defined the DNS and the domain name that we're now going to forward onto all the clients whenever they join onto our network. So that's kind of nice. And you would want to do that really most of all if if you're going to start running your own internal DNS service because you want them to inherit your DNS server first uh, before they go out to some other one outside. Uh, Or you might want to make sure that they're inheriting your open DNS um, setting because you might have some kind of site-specific settings through the Open DNS control panel, so you want to make sure that all your clients are are getting that. It's kind of nice. I mean, just superficially, here we have some Open DNS settings. Just things like the the company logo appears on the um, the the fail the failure page when they can't when it doesn't resolve to anything it'll it'll show the company logo and say we're sorry you, know, you you didn't get to where you want and if there was anything that you were blocking on that network through open dns um, then like you know unixporn.com you might be blocking that because you don't want people looking at at pictures of desktops um, so they would get blocked that way whereas if no one was inheriting your dns um, services, then everyone in the building would be looking at Unix porn all day. Now we want to define our subnet. And now since we only have two network cards in our physical server, one of which is ingesting the internet and sending stuff back out to the internet, the other card is essentially, if you think about it, that's the router. It's That's, that's, the, that's the thing that's going to define the subnet. It, that's Everything on one subnet is talking to that one card. If we had three cards, then we could have two subnets. Because we've got one for the internet, and then we've got two for the internal distribution of IP addresses. If we had four ethernet cards, um, then we could have three subnets, and so on and so forth. So, um, right now, since we're doing a simple setup, we only get one, one subnet. But that's okay. That's all we need. So we'll do subnet space 192.168.8 dot zero space net mask space two five five dot two five five dot two five five dot zero. So we're just saying that everything in this subnet everything talking to this card is one big pool of IP addresses. We'll open up a curly bracket. I think of this as kind of like a CSS 
block, you know, like if you've ever seen a style sheet, they have like the class name or the ID name and then they have an open curly bracket and then you have all the lines and then you close the curly bracket under that. That's kind of what we're doing. So we open a curly bracket and then the next line you can say option space routers space 192.168.8.1. So if you recall from when we were setting up the server, the big server that we just set up, um, well, we're still setting it up, but you know, the, the network interfaces, I should say, we had defined the not the internet network card, but the internal network card that we're using for the rest of the w computer as 192.168.8.1 static address. So that means that everything in this subnet now is inheriting the fact that the router that they're going to be talking to to send information and get information back from has the address of 192.168.4.1. And that, my friends, is where they get all the packets, and that's where they send all the packets, which are then forwarded to the other network card, which are forwarded to the router at your ISP, which are then forwarded to the internet, and magic happens. Next line, option space subnet dash, dash mask space, well again that's 255.255.255.0 um, because we only have one network card, and so we only have one subnet mask. Remember to put semicolons. I, I think I just now forgot to put one after the router line. So 192.168.8.1 semicolon. And on this subnet mask, 255.255.255.0 semicolon. The next uh, line will be option space broadcast dash address. And that is, in this case, it'll be 192.168.8.254 semicolon. That's basically everything on up to the very last IP address. The range, this is an interesting one. This is kind of cool. This is actually, to me, this is like one of the most fun things about ha having a server, that, that, like a DHCP server, for some reason. Um, maybe just because it's really familiar to me because I used to do this kind of thing in the little routers that I would buy from Best Buy. But um, the, the range lets you decide what portion of the potential IP addresses that that this server is generating now, what range of those addresses you're going to hand over to DHCPD for it to just automatically hand out to all the people who sign onto your network? Meaning that you could do like a range of 192.168.8. Dot, I don't know 80 space 192.168.8.253 and say that that's those are the addresses that get automatically assigned to clients. And that means that you have 80 addresses at the beginning of that, or well, 79 addresses at the beginning of that, of that, of, of your subnet, where you can statically assign those to, to the computers that you want to statically assign them to. Obviously, you would want some static assignments, right? You'd want the server to have a static assignment. You don't want the 192.168.8.1 to suddenly become 8.8. .8. You know, you might have a file server on the network. You might have a network-attached printer that you would want to obviously always be at the same address. So all of these things you can you can auto you you can assign hard-coded into this very configuration file, which we'll do in a minute. Um, and and the DHCPD server will not then take over those addresses and assign them out to other people. So it's a kind of a cool feature. You've got a lot of control. A lot of fine-grained control. Remember to end that line in a 
go ahead and say it out loud. Loud, loud and long. Say it. Semicolon. Yes. Um, default dash lease dash time space. Heck, I don't know. I just put in a bunch of big numbers. Eighty-eight thousand. Um, no commas. Semicolon max dash lease dash time space. I don't know. One hundred and twenty thousand. Semicolon. Um, I don't really have an issue with this. I could actually probably even lengthen it. There's there's just not that much problem with with the, the length of the lease times. Um, but obviously, again, you, you get a lot of fine-grained control here, so you can actually control how often you're forcing people to refresh their IP address, stuff like that. Now we close the curly bracket. Right under here, like if we had another network card, then we could create another subnet. And if we had another... S Ethernet card, we could create another subnet. And basically, the, the trick is that the router becomes the name of that network card, or the, the router becomes the IP address of that network card. So if you think back when we were setting up that other Ethernet card, the network card, we were saying that that gets the static assignment of 192.168.8.1. Then we're saying, you know, we would go over to the next network card in our configuration file, whether it's rc.inet.com or if the 3.conf or whether it's um, if cfg-eth2 whatever it is then you can assign that a different address and that becomes the router for that subnet so that would become option space routers space 192.168.8. let's say 129 and then you would set your subnet mask to 255.255.255.128 semicolon and, and so on and so forth so you can do that um, just as much as you want and, and subnet the thing um, and you'll have to read up on subnets and figure out whether they're right for you whether it's, they're worth doing or not it, it's really kind of um, you know there, there's, there are good points to it and then there are sort of like why are you even bothering points to it um, and, and they each have their own different reason for, for existing um, it, it turns out that I, I find it very helpful because it kind of can isolate certain departments. Not it doesn't hard hard isolate. It doesn't. It's not a firewall, but it, it reduces the the noise because if you're sending packets around from computers on one subnet, well, they know they don't have to probe the other subnet for for addresses and stuff. They don't need. They know that that computer isn't on that subnet because it's a 192.168.9 address. So they don't even have to go to that floor in that department and t and see and and scan that range of of computers. So that's kind of nice. Um, but it's yeah, it's just kind of something that it's 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 not something that I've ever so far in my very very limited experience set up and just like, oh my gosh, that's changed my life. But I'm sure there's some server admin out there who has had their life changed by subnets, and when I meet that person, I will interview them. So, next uh, block of code here, or configuration lines, whatever, are the static assignments. And this is really easy. You just say host space host name, whatever the host name is, space curly bracket, and then inside of this curly bracket stanza, we have hardware space Ethernet space, you know, 00. Or I mean, 00 colon 26 colon 9A colon 20 colon EC colon 
C8 colon 48 semicolon remember those semicolons and then fixed dash address space 192.168.8.8 semicolon and then close the curly bracket and all that does I mean you can probably just figure that out I probably don't even need to tell you exactly what that's doing so there you go alright so now we've just configured the dhcpd.conf um, so that is what the daemon that runs DHCP will look to to figure out what it's supposed to do, what addresses it's supposed to hand out, what addresses it's supposed to keep away from, when it sees a certain MAC address, what address to give that MAC address if it's been hard-coded, static, um, whatever. Uh, the only thing really we have to do is restart that service if it's running. So if it's if it's already running on Red Hat, it would be service DHCPD restart or start if it's not running at all. On Debian, of course, it would be slash etsy slash init dot d slash dhcpd uh, space restart or start or whatever it needs to be. On Slackware, you can just restart the script uh, the same way. It's, it's slash etsy slash rc dot d slash rc dot dhcpd and then you could restart or start whatever you you have to do. Uh, and there you go. That's, uh, that's the dhcp server. So now you can step away from that server finally and you can plug another computer into that Ethernet port, or you could uh, plug a switch into that Ethernet port. That'd be cool. And then plug another computer into that switch, and maybe a wireless router into that switch, and a printer into that switch. All kinds of devices. Just plug them into a switch, plug that switch into um, the network card, the, the, the network card that isn't serving the Internet, or that isn't getting the Internet, and then um, that will latch onto that server and suddenly the magical blue smoke will come out of the server through the little cable into the switch and it'll just go everywhere it's it'll be all over the place you'll have internets in just all over the place you won't be able to get it out for weeks of course i really should probably mention that if you are on the internet in this fashion you've set up a router but we haven't even touched on a firewall. So right now you've got the internet coming into this box completely, basically unadulterated. It's just the internet, meaning that that's really, really dangerous. Um, there's usually a default set of IP tables that come along with any kind of major Linux distribution, so you should turn that on. Um, you can get a list of IP tables, and I'm not about to attempt to do an IP tables tutorial because I'm nowhere near knowing enough about that to speak intelligently about it, but you can get a list of your IP tables as root user, IP tables space dash L, and then you can see if there are default settings. There are usually really good default IP tables included. If you don't know IT, IP tables at all, then you may want to go ahead and um, not go onto the internet yet, um, but you might want to turn on the um, X11 firewall configuration tool that comes along with your distribution, whatever that would be, and then you can make sure that there are some sane settings in there. Like I say, usually there are some really good uh, default settings so that if you do this exercise, you're not completely opening up your box to the entire world. But understand that this that is what's happening here. You've you've got the internet coming into your wall and you've got it plugged into a computer. There's no friendly little router 
box between between that computer and the whole world right now. There's no there's no thing, no router there that protects really a whole lot. So you want to make sure that IP tables are turned on and that they've got some good default settings before you continue too much longer. And that's it. That's all I can say about setting up a, a gateway and a DHCPD or a DHCP server. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I hope it has been informative and maybe demystified some of the things about servers. Next episode, we're going to go right into DNS server setting up thereof. So join me next episode for setting up a DNS server. Thank you for listening to Hacker Public Radio. For more information on the show and how to contribute your own shows, visit hackerpublicradio.org. Thank you.